The following sermon was delivered by Associate Pastor, Reverend Werner Ramirez, in the Sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here is Reverend Ramirez. Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6 starting at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are under law, not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have been obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as once you were presented, your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. So what advantages did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. The advantages you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, before we begin, I'm going to invite up Reverend Sarah Speed, and I'm going to do a little bit of an exercise here. Um, we're going to make a list of about five to ten things that Christians don't do, or perhaps what Christians may find sinful. And I actually want you to be, like, so there might be some stuff on that list that you're like, that's not sinful. I actually want you to be stereotypical for this exercise. So... For this one, for like the start, when I was a teenager, um, Christians did not party at all. So when I was a teenager, teenage, no teenage drinking. Christians, no teenage drinking. All right, let's get a list of about four or five more. All right, I want to hear from you. What are other things that Christians do not do? Curse. Oh. There's some sinners in this room I know for a fact. What else? Go to the movies, okay. What was that? Avery, I heard it. Drink beer. Drink beer, okay. Okay. Let's get two or three more up there. No smoking, okay. So substance abuse, yeah. Okay. Dance. Oh, we're going to talk about that later. All right, this is fun. Let's do like two more. Lie to your parents. Lie to your parents. Okay. 
All right, one more. Gamble. Okay. Steal and gamble. All right, let's give Reverend Sarah Speed a round of applause. My handwriting would be considered sinful, so I asked Sarah to help me. Now, there was a time in my life where I felt that living a Christian life was a life of not sinning. Now, I knew early on that no one was perfect and that we would always make mistakes. But still, what I really believed that God truly wanted from us was to avoid sinning. And to be honest, I was pretty good at not doing stuff on the list. And I felt superior to others when I didn't do the stuff on the list, but my friends or classmates did. But yet the opposite was true when I actually did do something like this. If instead of shucks I said something else, I would just, I, I, would, I would feel worthless. I would feel like I had no self-control. And worst of all, I started to question my salvation. And the peak of this for me was actually when I was around 20 years old. I just started becoming a youth intern at the church that I grew up. And I wanted to provide the best Christian example for these teenagers. So I literally, I felt like I was tiptoeing around, looking down and making sure I wasn't sinning. And, and that's how I lived my life. But what happened because of that is I became a real annoying Christian. <laughs> I started saying phrases like, be blessed, my brother, and hate the sin, love the sinner. And I wasn't being myself. Because myself, even back then at 20 years old, is still like a 13-year-old at heart, the same that I am now as a 37-year-old. But I wasn't doing that. I was this facade. I was an image of what I thought a Christian should be. And then I started a youth ministry program at my undergrad. And one of my professors said something that I think changed my life. The professor said to us, you all have to remember that you are forgiven. Because if you cannot accept God's grace on your own, how will you show that to your adolescents? And something changed in me after he said that. Instead of tiptoeing around sin, I was able to look up and actually see the faces of some of the teenagers that I was shaming. And I was able to look them in the eye and attempt to love them as Jesus did. Now, the passage that we read today is a complicated passage, especially if you read it by itself. So I think you need to know a little bit of context of the group that Paul was writing to and a little bit about Paul. Now remember, Paul is a Jewish follower of Christ. He is the Apostle Paul, but before that, he was a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee, who would actually persecute Jesus' followers. But after having a literal come-to-Jesus moment, he became a spreader of Jesus' story and message. And from the book of Acts, we know that the church in Rome, in Rome existed for quite some time. And the church in Rome was made up of some Jewish Jesus followers and some Gentile Jesus followers. So at times there would be some tension, but for the most part they, they were a well-organized church. But then we also know from history that Roman Emperor Claudius expelled Jewish people from Rome. And then five years later they returned. 
And when they came back, they found a church that was very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And now there was a lot more tension. So by Paul's day, it was a very divided church. And, there were, and a lot of the things they were arguing about is how do they follow Jesus? What rules do they follow? And what rules do they not follow? So Paul writes a letter to them hoping to unify the church. But he also saw some potential in the Roman church. And he thought that it could be a great catalyst of continuing to spread the message of Jesus even further out west into Spain. So he, Paul says to them, I'm going to write to you my most fullest explanation of the gospel. So one of the things that we see in this passage, but we see throughout the letter to the Romans, is this theological idea of justification through grace. And this is at the heart of the gospel. That there isn't anything you can do to earn your salvation. That through Christ and God's love and grace, we are not only saved, but we have fellowship with God, our creator. It's something that we remember every single time at the assurance of pardon. So Paul sees this community that's trying to earn God's favor with things they did and did not do, but they were forgetting that God's favor was already with them. The people at the Fuller Youth Institute call this the Red Bull gospel. Do you all, you all know what a Red Bull is? It's an energy drink, and when you drink the energy drink, it gives you energy for about two hours or so, and then what happens? You crash. So the people at the Fuller Youth Institute saw that many teenagers were trying to live a Christian life very similar to that I was by not doing sinful things. It would give them energy for a little bit, but eventually they would crash. When they would fall into some temptation, they would feel so ashamed that they would walk away from their faith, or they would discern that what the church told them was unclean or bad wasn't actually true for them. Then they distrusted the church altogether. But friends, I want you to hear this good news. We do not believe in a Red Bull gospel. We do not earn our salvation. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, you are forgiven. You are loved. And you are enough. Grace wins. Paul continues to make this point. That grace is what wins. And he's saying this to these Roman Christians. But before we continue, I need to bring up something that's awkward in this passage. He says to them, you were slaves to sin, and now you are slaves to righteousness. And I think we need to address that because we live in a country who has, that has lived into the sin of slavery. And we continue to see the ramifications of that to this day in institutionalized racism. So for Paul's community, slavery was part of everyday life. It was part of their reality. In fact, some of the people he is writing to were probably slaves. Explaining grace and justification is really tough. We try to do this almost every single week, but it's so mysterious that we can't fully put it into words. And in verse 19, Paul admits, I'm trying to speak to you in ways that you understand. And this analogy works for them. In some of the commentaries I read for this passage, they try to explain it like this. That 
we're all a slave to something. If you really like fashion, you might be a slave to fashion. Or if you really like to work out, maybe you're a slave to fitness. But knowing the pain that slavery has had for black people in America, that phrase doesn't feel appropriate to me, and it feels gross. Again, Paul says in this passage, he's trying to speak to them in terms or analogies that they understand. And perhaps in our day and age, it might be time to admit that that analogy of being a slave to sin and a slave to righteousness does not work for our context today. Paul is writing to the Romans, and he had no idea that this would end up being scripture. So perhaps for today, it might just be better to say the word controlled. I think what Paul is trying to say to the Romans, and perhaps to us, is that we are prone to be controlled by our own desires that may hurt ourselves and hurt others. He calls that sin. Yet by the grace of God, since you have been forgiven, you are no longer controlled by sin, but now you have the guidance to do what is just, righteous, and loving. And friends, that's what us in the churchy world call sanctification. Grace compels us to live a life that bears the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes, grace gives us justification. It saves us. It literally saves us. And it gives us a connection with the divine. But that same grace also moves within us and transforms our heart. And in this, we reject sin, not assuming that we can be perfect, but we turn away from sin and turn towards love. And here's the good news. We don't have to do that alone. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us. At 20 years old, I was so focused on not sinning and trying to do the right thing. But it was all up to me. No wonder I kept on failing. I was relying on myself and not the Holy Spirit. So how do we turn away from sin and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us? Well, first, let's try to briefly define sin. That could be a completely different sermon, but we're going to try to do it in just a, a few moments. We had a list up here. Again, some might view some of those things on that list as sinful. And for some, that might be a very fundamental view of thinking. But I think there are some things that we can directly call out as sin. For instance, I have no problem calling racism a sin. The amount of hurt racism has had in, in thought and in deed is dangerous. And I'm going to call it sinful. Now... There was a time that some people thought dancing was a sin. If you've seen my unrhythmic dancing, I would probably agree. <laughs> but yet I know people who use their body and movement and dance in a way that worships God. There was teenage drinking on that list. As a 16-year-old, I was convinced that teenagers should not drink at all. But then Somebody from Germany came to, 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 that visited. He was 16 year, year old and a Christian. And he's like, no, that's, that's normal life for us. And it completely confused me. There are some things that are not objectively bad or sinful. And it's dangerous and hypocritical to try to point out sins in other people, especially when not examining your own. So I wonder if a simple definition of sin might be 
whatever blocks you from loving God, loving yourself, and loving others. If an action or a mindset or a substance is hindering you from seeing yourself as a child of God or hindering you seeing others as a, as a children of God, perhaps we repent of that and turn away from it and turn to something better. Again, we must always remember that we are already forgiven. You are loved and through grace you are enough. But that same grace gives us the process in which the Holy Spirit helps us live a life in better ways. You are loved and you're enough. And you are loved so much that God doesn't want you to simply stay where you are. The Holy Spirit, she helps you grow. Womanist and Presbyterian theologian Katie Geneva Cannon says this is the question for sanctification. What is the work your soul must have? So that's the question for us, individually and as a community. What is the work our soul must have? Where must we turn away from hurting others and work that into a way that combines that into a loving embrace? This past Wednesday, some of our youth group students came and volunteered at a place at the, at the table. Place at the Table is part of our ecumenical outreach partnership. St. Rodrigo and his team up in the kitchen, they prepare hot meals on Mondays and Wednesdays, and our social workers and volunteers pass out the meals to people who are hungry right here on 55th Street. And earlier in the year, the youth raised some money for a place at the table um, at the Super Bowl of Caring and the Chile Cook-Off, for those that remember. And they said, but we want to see what this program looks like. So school ended on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, they came to volunteer here. So they helped prep meals, they helped serve them, but they looked people in the eye. They introduced themselves, they said their name, they asked people their name, they had conversations, and it was an amazing experience. Afterwards, we debriefed a little bit, and I asked some of them, what changed for you today? And one of our most youngest students said, I was nervous to come today. I'm scared of homeless people. But after today, I have empathy. I truly believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in the heart and action of this young person and sanctifying him. The Holy Spirit did some work on his soul. What is the work you must have for your soul? And friends, it is easy to look at a hurting world and be crushed by policies and actions of others and leaders in this world. And I'm going to admit something, that by the end of this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I was incredibly disappointed, discouraged, and sad about some of the rulings that the Supreme Court had. And you might disagree, and that's fine. But it made me wonder, what does the soul of this country need to work on? How, must this, how can this country be sanctified? But then I was reminded that in this country, we believe the, that there is separation between church and state. And I think that's a good thing. The government cannot dictate what the church does, and the church cannot dictate what the government does. I actually think it's quite brilliant. And, we, and because of that, we must remember that the United States of America is not a Christian nation by design. As Christians, we can do our part in the process to put laws and policies that will help others. But when it comes down to it, governments are going to do what governments do. 
there will be some laws and decisions that bend towards justice. And there will be some laws and decisions that uphold injustice. There will be results that devastate you, and there will be some that you rejoice in. And those feelings of devastation and rejoicing are real because laws and policies affect people's lives. But governments are run and controlled by people. Our faith is controlled by the grace of God. And that God who is compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love will continue to sanctify us in ways that do works of justice, hope, peace, and love. And no government can stop the Holy Spirit from sanctifying us. We will continue to work through anti-racism in love because that's part of sanctification. We will continue to remind our LBGTQ plus siblings that they are beloved children of God because that is part of sanctification. We will continue to serve the poor and the marginalized because Jesus told us to do it and because that's part of sanctification. No earthly law can put that into place or take that away from us. In a world where there seems to be a lack of grace, we turn to a good God who invites us to this very table. At this table, grace wins. At this table, we are reminded of a grace that's like gravity, pulling us down to the truth that no matter where you are in your faith or your journey, you are loved you're enough and you will continue to grow friends may you leave living into your story that grace has won for you are deeply loved and through the grace of god you are enough amen we hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope encouragement and good news if you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.